Well, thank you so much for the uh, invite. It's a real privilege to be here. I think when they heard that I was from Northern Ireland, um, they decided that I probably wouldn't need a microphone because Northern Ireland preachers are fairly renowned for their audibility um, and aggression. Um, but I will use this for the meantime. I'm, I'm happy to keep using this as, if this is helpful. It's a real privilege to be here. Thank you so much for the welcome. I know that some uh, other members of our team have been here as part of the Big Objection series. They They've really valued the time here. They've really appreciated your warmth and your love and your enthusiasm. Um, And so when I heard about the opportunity here, I fought them off to get a chance to come myself. They wanted to come back, um, but I used my Irish charm to uh, get the invitation for myself. Um, It's it's really encouraging to be here, uh, and thank you for the warm welcome. I was was greeted at the uh, front entrance by an army of... Um, people in blue jackets. And I know that you did that, especially for me as someone who's very, very um, in favor of blue jackets. So um, I just want to say that I appreciate that little personal touch. Every little helps. And you've helped an Irish guy um, feel very much at home. Why would you base your life on a book of fairy tales? It's a big question. And with all big questions, I always go to um, the source of all knowledge as a place to start. So um, yesterday, I opened up Siri, and I said, Siri, would you base your life on a book of fairy tales? Siri replied, that's an interesting question. (laughs) And I said, now Siri, come on, that's not actually an answer. Can we actually base our life on a book of fairy tales. And Siri replied, that may be beyond my abilities at this present moment. (laughs) So Siri had to buy out of this particular difficult question. Unfortunately, I don't get the luxury of buying out. Um, So we're going to tackle this big question this morning. When I first started um, studying at the University of, of Oxford, one of the Things, the first things that happened to me on my first week was a book was given to me in my pigeonhole. And I quite like books, so I was quite excited to see what this was. And when I um, opened this book and began to see what, what was actually contained within it, I discovered that this was the University of Oxford Examination and Assessment Regulations for Study Programs in the Year 2014 to 2015. So this was a 900-page paperback. It was like war and peace, only much less interesting in paperback. It was this thick 900-page book with really small font, and it was all of the regulations and all of the information for every program that was going on for every student at the university for that particular year. Now, they've since gone very economical and very green and moved it to an online format. Um, but, But... Round about, I guess, page 648, somewhere in that region, there was this little paragraph in this ginormous book that was somewhat relevant to me that actually discussed the course that I was doing and discussed the regulations and the expectations and um, the penalties for certain um, misdemeanors and things like that for not keeping to the rules. And I think sometimes when we encounter this book, This 
rather large 900-page paperback um, or whatever version you have book. Our attitude towards the Bible can be a little bit like that, particularly if you're not used to it. We can assume that the Bible is an ancient book. It's had a place in our culture. And maybe perhaps somewhere around page 648, there might be this little paragraph that is somewhat interesting, somewhat relevant to our lives. But on the whole, it doesn't really have much to say. And I think one of the major reasons why this is the case, why we can have this attitude towards the Bible, is because of the question that we find ourselves asking this morning. There is a huge assumption in the question that we're asking this morning. And the assumption is, isn't the Bible just a book of fairy tales? Now, that's a really common assumption in our culture, particularly if you don't engage very much with the Bible. That the Bible is nothing but a book of fiction, it's a book of ancient myth, it's a book of Middle Eastern folklore, a book that was possibly compiled by power-hungry churchmen in a conspiracy to turn the historical figure of Jesus, who never might have claimed to be God, who only claimed to be a rabbi, to change him into the Lord and Savior of the universe, under whose authority people would come, and under the control of a corrupt church, they would come as a result. A book that may contain intriguing stories, one or two noble moral principles, but only something to be taken seriously by people who are either scientifically ignorant, brainwashed, or have switched their brain off altogether. To take the Bible seriously for some people today is equivalent to belief in fairies, Santa Claus, the flying spaghetti monster, Real Jedis and Sith Lords long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Apologies for the dig to you Star Wars fans. As I was researching this, um, I noticed an American billboard campaign online that was um, circulated in the United States a number of years ago. And on this billboard, there was a 10-year-old girl pictured sitting with a smile on her face, a Santa hat on her head. And beside her was her letter to Santa, which said, Dear Santa, all I want for Christmas is to skip church. I'm too old for fairy tales. Now, there may be certain reasons why you would want to ask Santa to skip church, but is the fact that what you find in church is a bunch of fairy tales actually the reason for it? That's a very, very common uh, assumption. And other people, you know, who can maybe rationally be expected to take this stuff seriously are only kids. To do so, to take the Bible seriously as an adult, well, that's a little embarrassing. Perhaps it's even a little dangerous. In the same way that those who might, for whatever reason, base their lives on tales of the Brothers Grimm and because of that have a strong prejudice towards wolves or stepmothers or ugly sisters, perhaps even an unhealthy interest in um, frogs are people who base their lives on the Bible dangerous to science, dangerous to human flourishing, dangerous to children and free thinking, dangerous to non-believers and people whose lifestyle maybe doesn't concur with biblical teaching. 
Stephen Hawking in an interview for The Guardian in 2011 said this, religion was a myth that humans are basically biological machines that will eventually run out. He says there is no heaven, there is no afterlife. That is only a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. And Richard Dawkins in his famous book, The God Delusion, said, to be fair, much of the Bible is not systematically evil. Thanks for that, Richard. But it's just plain weird, as you would expect, of a chaotically cobbled together anthology of distorted documents, composed, revised, translated, um, distorted, and improved by human by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists, bringing them down to us to um, and, sorry, unknown to us and mostly unknown to each other, spanning nearly nine centuries. It's real criticism. And maybe you're here as a skeptic this morning and this is some of your thoughts when it comes to the Bible. And yet, despite this strong skepticism, the Bible is still the most widely read and the most widely published book in human history. It continues to be the world's bestseller year in and year out. There's been a huge influence in the Bible, shaping who we are, shaping the very fabric of our culture. In fact, at the minute, I'm reading a book by an Indian philosopher called Vishal Mangawali. And in it, he explores, coming from the East, he explores what was the significant factors in the West that shaped the soul of the West, that shaped the West as such a progressive and a dominant culture. And what he concludes is that the influence was down to the principles that people discovered in the Bible when they took it seriously. The Bible has been influential in shaping language, literature, music, morality, law, government, democracy, education, science, philanthropy, medicine, human dignity, and even equality. So many of the values that we so value in our society today and often take for granted were motivated and originally sourced by the Judeo-Christian worldview that we find in the Bible. And even today... Many people will express deep commitment to the Bible. Churches all over the world today will come together to meet with each other and to meet around the teaching of this book in order for it to influence and affect and shape and sometimes change their lives. And I've met some of them who've been to prison, who've been persecuted simply for that conviction. Now, if the Bible is a book of fairy tales, what is going on? And we're asking today, can we actually trust the Bible? And when we ask that question, I think we need to ask a further clarifying question. And it's this, what, can, what are we actually expected to trust the Bible for? And I want to give you four categories Four categories um, of thought about what we're actually, as Christians, expected to trust the Bible for. I'm going to go very quickly through these, okay? Um, I I don't have a lot of time this morning, um, and so if it seems like I'm going at breakneck pace and skipping over a lot of information and complex ideas, that means you're paying attention, because that's exactly what um, I'm doing. There's so little time to do a lot of this 
um, justice. But my colleague, Amy Orr-Ewing, um, with the Zacharias Trust, has written a book on this exact topic. It's called Why Trust the Bible. And it's available online for very cheap. I think it's available through the Zach Trust as well. Um, I would encourage you to get that, which will do far more justice to what I can do today. And I'm going to focus over the next few minutes as we ask these four, as we look at these four categories, what is it um, that we're meant to trust the Bible for? I'm going to focus on the Gospels. And the reason for that is because of brevity, but also because if we can trust the Gospel account of Jesus, and if we can trust that it may actually be historically accurate, then that will play a significant role in trusting the rest of the Bible. So what are we meant to trust the Bible for? The first category that I'd like you to think about with me is integrity. Can we trust that what we have in our Bibles today is consistent with the original documents? Now, the Bible is a two, at least a 2,000-year-old text, And it's normal in such an ancient text to not have the original documents that were written from antiquity. Because the material of which those documents were written um, was was not that durable. The Bible was written on two forms of material. There was no paper at this time. And it was written on papyrus, which was a highly durable reed from the Nile Valley. And it was also written on parchment, which is um, made from the skin of sheep and goats. But there were two problems with this. This is the only option that they had 2,000 years ago in which to write documents. But there's two problems. One is the problem of access to those documents. If the documents are only available on one piece of manuscript, there were all these other communities, Christian communities, scattered around Asia Minor, and they all wanted access to these documents because they believed that they held authority. And so in order to deal with that problem, manuscripts had to be copied in order to give access to other communities that wanted them the information that was contained. The other problem is durability. These things weren't that durable. And often these documents were, were, tr- were sent around by courier to these various different faith communities. But of course, transport and um, looking after precious documents as you travel around with them is not what it is today. It's not what it, what it was 2,000 years ago. And so in order to deal with this problem, what was often done was these copies were made. Because the originals, even now, would have long worn out. Scribes would duplicate these various documents um, into other manuscripts. And so in order to check the manuscript evidence, in order to check whether what is in the manuscripts is what we have today, historians do two particular tests. One is to examine how many copies of manuscripts we actually have. And the more manuscripts you have, the better your case for the integrity of that particular document. Because you can compare whether those different manuscripts say the same thing. And the more cumulative the evidence, the stronger the case. The second thing that you check is how close, historically, the documents that we do have can be dated to the original documents. So how many manuscripts do we have? And how close is the oldest document that we have to the original document itself? And what is significant 
is that scholars have recognized time and time and time again that there is no document in ancient literature that, is, that stands up so well, that is so strongly accredited according to these tests than the documents of the New Testament. One scholar says that to write off the New Testament, to write off the manuscript evidence as unreliable would be to write off all of classical antiquity, all of the documents that we have that that trace back to classical antiquity, and to write them off into complete obscurity because in comparison to the Bible, none of them come close in regards to this test. If you compare the documents of the next best, most attested document from ancient um, antiquity, Homer's Iliad, what you discover is that what we have in our possession today is 643 copies of manuscripts that that were copied from the original Iliad. And the original Iliad was expected to have been written around 900 BC. And the earliest copy that we have, out of those 643, comes from 400 BC. So you have 643 copies, which is fairly good. And you have a time difference between the, early, the latest, the earliest, sorry, that we have and the original document of 500 years. That's the second best. But in comparison to the New Testament, we have not on 643, we have 24,000 manuscripts or fragments of manuscripts. And the earliest of those manuscripts date not hundreds of years from the original documents, but simply a few decades. Now, if that's the test, and we look at copies of Homer's Iliad and copies of Plato and things like that, and we take them seriously, that these reflect what was originally said in the original documents. These have integrity. We have to do the same for the original um, the, for the original manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. Now, the second test, and there's a lot more that I could say about that. The second test is the test of historicity. The Gospels were not necessarily written to people already committed to Christian faith. In fact, the Gospels themselves were written by their own testimony as eyewitnesses accounts of historical events. They were written, it is claimed, by eyewitnesses or by the source of eyewitnesses, whether they weren't actually written by the eyewitnesses themselves or whether they were written by someone who was part of a party of an eyewitnesses. Second Peter 1 says this, where he says that we were not following cleverly devised myths when we told you the things that happened concerning Jesus of Nazareth, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. This idea of the message of Christ, the message of Christianity being a myth, being a fairy story, it's not a new challenge. It's been going on even from a few years beyond the events themselves. So the Gospels claim to be eyewitness accounts. And if they are eyewitnesses accounts, that means that we can ask certain questions about them in order to check whether there is reason to believe 
Not necessarily proof, but whether there is reason to believe that what is accounted in these documents is possibly real history. And the question we ask is, are there traceable details in the, in the New Testament text? Now, this is very different from fantasy. This is very different from a fairy tale. A fairy tale, by very nature, is ambiguous because it's not trying to record history. So how do fairy tales start? Once upon a time, in a land far, far away, there was a prince, or there was a young girl. The details of the fairy tale are ambiguous because it's not expecting us to take it as history. There's nothing really there in order to check whether that land actually existed and whether at that time there was a prince or whether at that time there was a castle or whether at that time there was an actual person. It's not recording history, so it doesn't give the kind of details that we would check in order to validate the history. But the Bible does something very different. Listen to the way Luke starts his gospel in chapter 3. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea, and Herod being the tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Etruria, and Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. Now look at the detail of that. We are given... Who is on the throne? What years we're talking about when they were on the throne? Who else was on in charge of different regions? We're given the details, the, the specific name of the person we're going to focus on. We're also given the name of his family so that if there's another John in the area at that time, as would have been likely, we know what John we're talking about. The Gospels account specific historical details because they want us to check the history of what they are talking about. You would never do that if you were not writing history. If you were not confident that you were actually writing about real events, you would never give such detail in order that such events could be verified. And a lot of this detail as an original document was written, as I've said, within a few decades of the original events themselves. So much so that the characters involved in the stories or those who would have known the characters were still alive and could have been consulted in order to check whether what was said is true. You would not do that if you were writing fantasy. Now, this point deserves much more evidence, and I would encourage you to explore a book by Richard Bauckham, which is called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And he looks specifically into multiple areas and comes to the conclusion, he's a scholar based in Edinburgh, he comes to the conclusion that the Gospels can be relied as eyewitness accounts. 
The gospel writers, even though they didn't write in the land of origin, they give us details that help verify whether they're writing myth or legend or actual history. They seem to know the land. They seem to know the agriculture. They seem to know the obscure towns. They seem to know the cultures, the law, the botany, the personal names. They qualify those names so that we know exactly who we're talking about. They knew the places, even though they were writing geographically, far away from the land of origin. Now, you do not do this if you're writing fantasy. And in fact, this is one of the things that distinguishes the canonical Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, from the Gnostic Gospels. There simply aren't the same amount of details because you don't include details unless you're talking about And you want people to actually take it seriously as history. How do they know this kind of information? Why is this verifiable historical information given if it's not true? Why do they portray the disciples in such a negative manner? The leaders of the church. The ones who we were expected to believe for the message. Why would you present them in such a negative light? Unless your pursuit is historical truth rather than personal preference or biased speculation. Now this, I think, gives us enough evidence to at least consider that perhaps we're dealing with something that is very different from a fairy tale. Perhaps something that is worthy of consideration in itself. Something that was written to people in the exact position of non-commitment. Written in trust that if they took the evidence seriously, they might discover that these events were true. The third thing that I want to consider is, are we able to trust the Bible for not just the integrity of the message being passed along. Not just the fact that it might be truly history, but thirdly, revelation. If the Bible is history, if the Gospels are actually accounting historical events, what does that mean for their historical accounting of Jesus of Nazareth? What does that mean for their apparent historical accounting of Jesus' resurrection. See, the disciples and the apostles didn't go into the world and proclaim a message saying, the Bible is the word of God. You need to trust the Bible. The, The New Testament wasn't written at that time. What they went into the world with the message of was that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead. And by that very fact... He was exactly who he claimed to be. He was Lord. He was God. He was Savior. He was truth. And when they penned the documents of the New Testament, they did not pen them just to get people to trust a book, but to get people to trust the person through which the written historical witness that was contained within that book, that they would trust that person. All Christian faith in the Bible is nexused 
in the resurrection of Jesus. And this is a whole big objection in its own right. But if you were to take the minimal facts approach to the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this is an approach taken by scholars um, Gary Habermas and Mike Lacuna. And what they did was they surveyed over 3,000 scholarly works and scholarly articles. And they compiled it into three minimal facts that all scholars, not just Christian scholars, all scholars that they'd looked at, many of whom were atheists, agreed with three facts that they agreed with concerning the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Number one, they agreed that Jesus actually died by crucifixion. Number two, they agreed that the disciples really believed that he rose from the dead and appeared to them in the days following that resurrection. And number three, they believed that there was an explosion of Christian faith and confidence by um, the small Jewish sect of the Nazarenes right after the events that were meant to um, testify to the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. And if you were to examine the best explanation for how all of those facts can be true, in the case of all possible alternatives, it often, if we're honest, leaves us with the realization that the best explanation for these three attested facts is that Jesus did actually rose from the dead. What the New Testament said actually happened. And if it did, that means that Jesus is claimed to be the Son of God and God, uh, God made in human flesh. Jesus is claimed to speak God's words and bring God's message was true. And they were willing to go into the world and lay down their lives for that truth. That was the reason they wrote these books in the first place, to get people to that truth. The truth that God had spoken. They interpreted that event like this. That in times past, God had spoken in various ways and at various times through the prophets. But in these last days, he had spoken most clearly and most authoritatively in his son, Hebrews 1.1. Now, if God actually speaks, if the Bible is actually revelation from God in its testimony of Jesus Christ, what would we expect God to say? What would we expect God to have to say to us? Well, I think what we would expect is a coherent world story that speaks to the deepest part of our human experience. And my experience and the experience of many other Christians down through the centuries and around the world this morning is that the Bible, when read carefully and properly understood, speaks to the deepest longings and the biggest questions of the human heart. It presents a coherent world story that explains to us origins. Where did we come from? Meaning, why am I here? Morality, how should I live? And destiny, where am I going? 
In fact, in, um, it was this explanatory power that C.S. Lewis, the literature expert who knew a thing or two about myth and poetry and fantasy, wrote in a famous essay, Is Theology Poetry, that the message of the Bible couldn't simply be poetry or mythical ideas because it was way too real and too and correlated too closely with the human experience. And fantasy and myth of that time just did not do it. It brought him to the conclusion that the best explanation for life as we find it is the Christian explanation. That the explanations of naturalism and atheism and even explanations of science, though good, were not sufficient enough to explain our full story. And so he wrote at the very end of this essay, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen. Not simply because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. When we engage with scripture, I think we will find that the Bible does that. It claims to be a mirror on our lives. It claims to shed light on our human experience in a way that no other religious ideology or text can do. The final thing, and very quickly, the final thing that I think we're meant to trust the Bible for, not just integrity, not just historicity, not just revelation, but relationship. If the Bible is revelation from a person, not a theory, a God who is a person, the point of revelation is always to enter into a relationship with that person. The point of the Bible is not simply to trust the Bible. It's to trust the God that the Bible speaks of. Christians are people of a book only in the sense that that book illuminates for them the God who's interested in their lives and promises to be able to deal with the most fundamental issues and problems and, pro- and, and desires of the human heart. And if God is a person then the point of revelation, the point of a historical record of Jesus Christ is to get us to know God himself and based on that, to trust him in relationship. I brought my lovely wife, um, Amy, with me this morning. And I first met Amy in a context like this. I was speaking at her church and she was in the worship band. Um, it was a particularly good sermon that morning and it boded very well for me, I have to say. Um, but I can remember meeting Amy for the first time. I can remember seeing Amy for the first time. Revelation, just in terms of seeing her and watching her. In fact, I was so intrigued by her, I just, when I was preaching, I just zoomed in on her. And just focused on her. It was rather embarrassing. And her parents were in the service that, um, that day. But they loved the talk. Which means I was on to a winner. Um, but when I first met Amy. There were things that I discovered about her. But I wasn't ready to marry her. Because I didn't know if she was 
capable or worthy of the level of trust that marriage involves. I had questions. I was perhaps even skeptical about certain things. And I needed to go on a process of exploring. Now, if Amy had have not been interested, if she hadn't have not wanted to open up, if she had not wanted to go on a date, and if she had not wanted to converse and actually reveal who she is and what she was and how she thought and what her character was like through conversation and just through that exciting exploratory process, I could have never known whether I could trust her with my whole future, give her the most fundamental trust that I can give any human being. But based on that revelation, I stood in that same church that I first met her and committed my life to her. The promises that she made to me about being committed to me and loving me and trusting me and staying with me till death do us part. I believed, not just because she said them, but because through the revelation of her character as we had explored, I believed that that trust would be well placed. And Jesus claims to do the same thing for us. The reason why Christians base their life perhaps on a Bible is because Jesus claims to be the only true foundation, the only truly secure foundation for a human life. He said in Luke chapter 6 that whoever believes in me and the words that I speak and lives them out will be like a man who builds his house on a solid foundation in contrast to someone who builds perhaps the same house but on a shaky foundation. And the only thing that distinguishes the security or the, or the insecurity of that house is when a storm comes. I want to finish by saying this. All of us are basing our lives, whether we believe it or not, we're all basing our lives on a particular story. We're all basing our lives on particular ideas, particular promises. And that could be the promise that romantic love will fulfill us. It could be the promise that science answers all of our questions sufficiently. It could be the promise that there is no God, that human beings are just machines that will eventually run out and die, and anything beyond that is simply a fairy tale. It could be the promise that if we receive everything that the world tells us to receive in order to have a fulfilled and a worthy and a respectable life, if we receive those things, that's exactly what we'll get. But how many of us have built our lives on those things and find that they're not a secure enough foundation? It's not that they're necessarily bad. It's just that they're not secure enough. In a world of deep fragility, in a world of constant insecurity, we need a basis for our lives that can handle the biggest problems of human existence. Handle perhaps even death itself. And if Jesus Christ lived a human life, and if Jesus Christ did face human death, and yet came back from it, and now promises that all who were put their trust in him will experience the same reality as him, 
I think there's evidence to believe that that's a great foundation for our lives. We're all basing our lives on something. What are you basing your life upon? If it's not secure enough to handle the deepest challenges and the greatest tragedies and even death itself, it's not big enough. If it can't handle those things, we need to replace the foundation for our lives. And I think that in Jesus Christ, in my own experience and the experience of many others, he is exactly that foundation. Everything else may not be bad, but we could discover one day that those things that we entrusted the most fundamental parts of our life to, the ideas that we gave our complete trust to and orientated our lives around were, in fact, a fairy tale. I think Jesus Christ offers us a better way. And I commend him to you. Thank you so much for your time. God bless you.